Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info capitalchurch.co. And last week, how many of you were here last week? Okay, many of you were here last week. We talked about a spirituals church. If you weren't here last week, you can certainly go online and check out that podcast. But spirituals, by definition, is all the stuff. Everyone say the stuff. All the stuff or all the things that the Spirit of God does through his people. And so we kind, of, we kind of work through that a little bit. I might work through it a little bit here today. We, our text last week was 1 Corinthians 12, and we kind of talked about this kaleidoscopic range when it comes to the multifaceted way that the Holy Spirit works through our lives, right? We all have gifts. About 15 of you believe that, right? There's not one person in this room today that does not have a gift, Right? You have at least one, and I'm being facetious, right? You have more than one. We all have a unique gift mix that God gave to us at birth. We'll talk a little bit more of that. Um, at conversion, or when we put our faith in Jesus as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and in baptism, uh, at, technically at conversion, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts. And then there are moments in our life the Holy Spirit empowers us uh, with gifts for the sake, not our own sake but for the sake of building each other up, right, for the sake of encouraging each other, for the sake of building for the kingdom of Jesus in this city. And so we kind of we worked through that last week. Um, today, uh, we're going to go to Romans chapter 12. If you brought your Bible, you can turn there. But I'm going to do my best to kind of talk about, my, my thoughts are kind of all over the place, so just kind of bear with me. I'm going to talk a little bit about Halloween, and I'm going to connect that to um, this kind of this concept of cosmic warfare. And then I want to talk about how Romans 12, the spirituals, like, Everyone say spirituals. How the spirituals relate to um, the aforementioned things, uh, cosmic warfare, Halloween, etc. And then I'm going to end with um, something that churches don't talk a lot about. And please don't get up and if you hear this and leave. Um, and and I, I understand why churches don't talk about it because people get really confused about what this word means. But I'm going to talk a little bit about prophecy and the role of prophecy in um, the church as not how I see it, but how Paul sees it, okay? So we go to Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Uh, he writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be squeezed into the mold or the template of this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We've talked about this uh, a couple months ago in Thoughts and Things, how there is a theology of the mind. God transforms us as he renews our thinking, right? Do you believe that? Like there's a causal relationship between how we think and our implicit beliefs and how we see the world and how we behave and who we become as people of God. So, Paul is making the case that the way you don't get squeezed into the mold or template of this world is you have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And as you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, you then can test, and he says this kind of in the last clause, you can test and discern what the will of God is. What is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? It's funny, I've been in ministry now for 22 years. 
I know I look so young, and you're like so shocked with that. Um, but in 22 years of ministry, I've talked to countless people in counseling situations where they're like, hey, Chris, and we're, we're talking Christians. They're like, Chris, I just don't know what the will of God is for my life. And usually what I do is I take them back to this passage, Romans chapter 12, and I try to make the connection between, hey, if your mind is being renewed by God, you'll be able to see more clearly what he wants you to do. I think many times we as Christians, if we're not careful, we can fill our minds with junk, right? Right? We can, we can engage or participate in pathological thinking. Like Pastor Ken talks about this all the time, stinking thinking, right? And so our mind is clouded with stuff. And it could be good stuff, it could be bad stuff, but because our mind isn't being renewed by the Holy Spirit, we, we don't have a sense of what God has for us. God has a very clear plan for you. And he wants you to live within his will. So uh, the transformation of the mind is a prerequis- prerequisite for living out and fleshing out the will of God in our lives. He continues in verse 3, for by the grace, everyone say grace. Come on, everyone say it's all Grace. All right, turn to your neighbor and say, it's all grace. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself or self more highly than he ought to think. Right? So Paul, it, man, he's basically giving a full rebuke to this kind of self-satisfying or this self-serving arrogance. Right? Um, we're not going to participate in arrogance um, because we have one gift as opposed to another gift. Right? Uh, We're not going to play the game. Paul talks about that a lot. He rejects kind of the superiority complex. Uh, There's no one in this room that has an advantage over each other, predicated on the gifts that you have. Like, I've been in ministry for 22 years. I basically grew up in the church, and I'm pretty handsome. Move on. Um, That doesn't give me, that was a joke. Okay, some of you are like, no, you're not. Okay, stop it. You guys see your faces, right? Um, But joking aside, Um, I don't have an advantage over any in this room because I'm technically clergy, right? Uh, What's what's unfortunate is that we kind of collude with this world and we create these hierarchical structures of blessings. And there are some people that are blessed, some people are not. Paul says we're not going to play that. And so he makes it very clear that we all have been given grace. So let's make sure that we exercise humility, which is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking... um, yeah, whatever that was. Thank you. It's learning. It's turning uh, away from yourself and looking unto Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of your faith. So it's important that we think um, in terms of sober judgment. This is what he, um, Paul continues to say. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This is verse 4, right? For as in one body we have many members. And if you were here last week, you can kind of sense the parallels between this passage and 1 Corinthians 12. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. This is the language of incorporation. So if you have faith in Jesus, right, you're baptized, you are incorporated into the body of Christ. So your life is summed up with the life of Jesus and with each other. We're Americans, right? So we think of ourselves in individualistic terms. Our, our identity is formed around I'm an individual. Well, the Bible sees it a little bit different. Our identity, yeah, we got an individual identity, and Paul makes that clear. But our identity has a lot to do with what we are a part of, right? There's a corporate identity that we all have. The problem is, as American Christians, we really don't see ourselves in that way. 
Paul says, I want you to see yourself as an individual, but I also want you to see yourself as, as being a part of something larger. So verse uh, whatever, right? Verse 6, I think that's where we're at. Then he says, having gifts or charisma is the Greek word that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Could you turn to your neighbor and say, let us use them? All right, I'm going to be teacher here today. Sometimes I like to preach. Sometimes I like to teach. Mostly I like just being with you. Okay. Thank, yeah, thanks for that, guys. But, hey, how many of you have a gift? All right. Well, Paul says that we all have been given gifts, right? They're not your gift. Pause, side note. Let me just say this. I have people that come to me and say, Chris, you need to recognize my gift. I'm like, ah, I always just don't, just don't say that to me because that's kind of a conversation stopper with me. I don't have a gift, right? You don't have a gift in, in the sense that we possess it, we earned it, like we, like we came up with these gifts. No. Um, the gifts that we have, whether from birth or empowered by the Spirit, if you have a spiritual gift of working on Microsoft Word or you have a spiritual gift, we need more of that in the church. Can I get an amen, right? If you have a spiritual gift to coach or plumbing or administrating, whatever. How many plumbers do we have here? God bless you. All right, we love you. Or construction or working on cars, whatever it is, we don't own it, right? So Paul makes it very clear that we do not own our gifts. Those gifts have been given to us by the Holy Spirit. But he says something. We've been given these, this charisma. We'll define it as the spirituals, the stuff that the Spirit of God does through us. But it's important that we have to take responsibility to put them into practice. He says, let us use them. In other words, the spirituals that he's going to be talking about here pretty soon don't happen automatically. Right? Like, how many of you wish that this morning you could have woke up with your clothes on? Should I qualify? How many of you wish you could... You, you, you would have woke up this morning, already taken a shower. You didn't even, like, makeup on, right, if you're a girl. Uh, hair comb, whatever you do in the morning, right? Don't you wish that hour-long or, for some of us, two-hour-long process or 30 minutes, whatever it is, don't you wish every single day you could wake up, just bam, I'm ready to go, right? Well, that doesn't happen, right? You got you to gotta, you got to be ready for the day. You got thank God we took showers and thank God you put clothes on this morning, right? But that's your responsibility. So what Paul is saying, God has given gifts to every person at conversion and even before that, and he will empower certain gifts in certain moments. But we have the responsibility to put them into practice, like putting on clothes. Then he continues, okay, these are the list of gifts. Remember, we talked about this last week. The stuff that the Spirit of God does is very kaleidoscopic. In other words, there's an astonishing variety to all the gifts that God has given to his people. For, for instance, Joel Cano, I think he's here, uh, is extraordinary. How many of you love Joel? If you know him, give him a hand. We love Joel. He and I, I mean, he coached football this year, our flag football team. And I kept, I was just absolutely amazed at his innate ability to coach these kids up. He has a gift to coach and to empower people. We have, some of us are like Joel. 
uh, we have an ability to coach. Some of us, we have an ability to make money. Some of us are more generous than others. I think we should all exercise radical generosity, right? But we all have different gifts that reflect this multifaceted character of God himself. So we come to this list, verse 6 through 8. And again, he gives us this kind of brief list. It's illustrative, not exhaustive of all the things that God does. And he gives us examples of how God works in us. And he says in verse 6, if prophecy, and we're going to talk a little bit about this, you need to prophesy in proportion to your faith. If you have an ability to serve, I mean, you just love serving people. How many of you are acts of service people? Okay, a few of you. You just love to serve. You love helping people out. We need to work on this gift. Okay. Um, then serve, right? The one who teaches. How many of you like to teach, right? Many of you. Then you need to put into practice that teaching gift. And then he continues, the one who exhorts. Uh, you love to exhort. You love to encourage. You love to build people up. How many of you enjoy that? That's like you love that. That's awesome. That's a gift that God has given you. If you have that gift, use it, right? So exhort the one who contributes, like gives money. Do it with generosity. The one who le leads, the one who has a leadership gift, like you just, you, you love people and you want to serve and you just know how to like put things together, then you need to, to lead with passion, to lead with zeal. And the one who does acts of mercy, you need to do it with cheerfulness. Be genuine with your acts of mercy. We don't believe in quid pro quo relationships with people. Can I get an amen to that? So let love be genuine. So Paul gives us a list, right, in verses 6 through 8, just seven or whatever list of examples of how God works through us for the sake of building up the body and for the sake of building the kingdom of Jesus in our world. And then he says, I want your love to be genuine, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. we got about 11 verses we're going to skip. He basically says we are called to be a community of justice. We're called to be a community of radical generosity. We're called to be a community of self-giving love. Can I get an amen to that? Right? And the reason why I use self-giving love is because we've so domesticated love. Love can mean so many different things. We have self-love. we got self-help. we got all that kind of stuff. Self-giving love. Love is designed to give itself away. Right? And we are a community built on justice, radical forgiveness, and generosity, hospitality, and beauty. Right? And then he says something really interesting as I close my introduction. And then I'm going to spend the next four hours speaking. Some of you are here for the first time. I was a joke. He says this, this is interesting. After he builds up, here are the spirituals, right? And then he talks about love and beauty and justice and all that kind of stuff and forgiveness and being a blessing only people. He ends kind of his exposition in Romans 12. Do not be overcome by evil. So Paul gives us the purpose of the spirituals. And basically the spirituals are designed not just to build the body of Christ up, but it is to help us, empower us to overcome evil. Spirituals, as we talked about last week, plus self-giving love, learning to give our lives away as Jesus gave his life away, is how we, Paul makes it very clear, how we overcome evil. And we overcome evil not by meeting evil with evil. Can I get an amen to that? We overcome evil through goodness. All right, high five your neighbor. Turn to your other neighbor and say, thank God that's done. 
Oh, you're, that was a test. You sh- no, no, you're not supposed to do that. All right, bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for um, being with us today. Lord, we just thank you the next few minutes. Lord, you would help me speak your word. Lord, we just thank you for uh, your grace. Lord, we thank you that you are in charge. Thank you that you're, you're present here this morning. And so we thank you for all the, the ways in which you bless us. Lord, I pray that today that we would leave encouraged. I just ask today that we would, we would sense your presence or that your word would come to us and that we would leave empowered by your presence. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for your grace. And everyone said, amen. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, Halloween. Please don't get up and leave. And I expect no emails this week again. Um, if you have problems or maybe you disagree with kind of like my take on Halloween, you can email me at, at uh, joelking at hotmail.com. All right. It's a bad joke. Uh, I, I think, I'll be really honest before I kind of give you my take on Halloween. I think Christians do get a little bit weird about Halloween. Um, let me just say this really quick. St. Augustine, uh, people think he said this. This is a dictum. And I think this is a really healthy approach to trying to figure out things that maybe we're debating over. He says, in essentials, we should have unity. In non-essentials, we should have humility. But in all things, we should exercise charity. So the problem with Halloween, why are we talking about this, Chris? Because the problem with Halloween is that we take Halloween, which is important. We have strong opinions. How many of you have strong opinions? Four of you. This is not a joke, right? Raise your hand. We all have strong opinions. But in the Bible, there's no first or second opinions, right? Opinions are important. Let me say this. Your opinion about stuff is really important. Um, The problem, though, is we take our opinions or our judgments about non-essential things and we push them up into the essential category. And we divide and die over that. Let me tell you this really quick. Essential, the essential category is this. We believe Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We believe, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Jesus, Jesus died for our sins and he bodily came back from the dead, right? Those are essential things. We believe that there was one God. Come on. Not 5,000 gods. We believe that God is the creator of all things, this vast architecture of space and time and matter, right? Those are essential things that we need to die for. So if I come up here one Sunday and I'm like saying, I don't think Jesus is the king, you need to run for the hills, Right? We die and divide over that. But many times we divide over non-essential things. And so we take our, pers- our opinions about Halloween and we shove it up into the essential category. And we get weird as um, Christians. Well, we just don't believe in weird Christians, okay? So why are we saying that? Because that was, all def- that was a defensive move on my part. <laughs> because I don't want you to judge me. So when I was a young man, a little boy, my family, we would, we would not celebrate Halloween. So we were the family that we would um, turn out the lights. And my mom, how many of you love Pastor Connie? Love Pastor Connie. She's really compassionate. She, um, we, we, we didn't believe in giving out candy, right, because Halloween was the devil's day. And so we turned out the lights. But my mom, because she was so compassionate, she would leave little apples out, right, and gospel tracts. How many you remember? How many have been in church for a long time? Gospel tracts. And usually the next day we got egged. And we were like, why did we get egged, right? Like what kid wants an apple, right? And a track. Um, but it, for me, it was, it, Halloween was such an interesting experience because my parents were amazing. Obviously, we were pretty conservative. 
But we lived in a very loving home. And uh, we would have at times werewolves and vampires that would come and knock on our door. And I was the guy that was a little bit terrified of what was out there. Everyone would say out there. So I would, I would, I would army crawl everywhere, right? Because I didn't want to see, I, I didn't want the people to see that, you know, we were in there. And so we, we, we practiced the art of army crawling and, you know, being evasive and praying, you know, that the, the goblins or whatever wouldn't come and, and get us. But I had an interesting experience because, of, because again, I had great parents. Uh, I, I kind of lived within this juxtaposition of, and maybe this makes me weird, but I really at Halloween, and I think of Halloween in fond ways, that I felt safe but also terrified at the same time. I felt terrified because there were things, I realized that there were things out there in the world, we could say out there in the cosmos, that were pretty terrifying, but I also felt safe in my house, right? And uh, it was an interesting experience, and um, a writer, Russell Moore, kind of shares kind of a similar experience, and I want, I want to read what, what he wrote in his latest book. He kind of shares my, my affinity with Halloween. Halloween is his favorite um, holiday. I actually really enjoy Halloween. Please don't judge me, okay? Um, but this is what Russell Moore said. It was the night, Halloween, also seemed to reinforce what I read in my Bible, that the universe around me was alive with invisible forces, some of which meant me harm. He continues, the best part of night for me had nothing to do with candy or costumes, but was rather when the night was over, when I was tucked away in bed, knowing that my parents were asleep on the other side of that sheetrock wall. That, that night outside might be howling with witches and werewolves, but all was safe at home. That seemed far from pagan to me. It seemed, as a matter of fact, right in line with my biblical ancestors in ancient Egypt. The angels of death could lurk around outside the house all they wished, but the blood was on the doorpost and all would be well. So, don't judge me here. My wife and I, the last few years, we don't turn off uh, the lights. In fact, we actually go out and we do trick-or-treat with our kids. Now, they have costumes. They're not in werewolves and stuff like that. They have Avengers stuff. I thought about dressing up as Thor because I, totally, I totally look like them, guys. I'm so trapezoidal. Is that even a word, right? I got a square jaw. Anyways, um, we made a decision. My wife and I made a decision. Yeah, the, the devil doesn't first own candy. Right? Again, there's a lot of different arguments. I know all the arguments. I've been in church for a very long time, and I think I'm right about this. And if you disagree, you can totally email me, but you're wrong, okay? <laughs> um, but we made a decision, yeah, the devil doesn't own the candy. The devil doesn't own the night. In fact, Christians from the very beginning, I understand Halloween is a pagan festival, right? I understand why the ancient pagan world decided to put on costumes of the dead because they wanted to ward off right, all the evil spirits. But I also know Christians from the very beginning believed in Psalm chapter 24 that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? So Christians from the very outset have taken pagan holidays. Christmas, yes, is a pagan holiday, but we've repurposed it for the kingdom of God because we believe God's on mission and God so loved this world that he gave himself, right? So he became a part of this world. Amen. Uh, he was in it, but he was not of it. So we made a decision a couple years ago. We're going to take our kids out 
uh, with good friends. And yes, we're going to trick or treat. And the one thing we're going to teach our kids when it comes to Halloween, actually the two things. The first thing is, is that Halloween is a cultural reminder that yes, our world is a war-torn universe. In other words, when they go, in other words, when they go around and they see ghouls and is it ghouls, ghosts, goblins? I don't know. Ghouls? Who says ghouls? If there's what in the world, there were spooky things or whatever. We teach our kids. Okay, guys. Yes, our world. Yes, is in, I'll say it a little bit different, but our world is engulfed in cosmic warfare. In other words, yes, there are mysterious realities afoot, invisible realities that we cannot see afoot out there in this world. I tell them that, number one, okay? So Halloween reminds us of that. Number two, we don't have to be afraid of those realities because Jesus won the victory over every malevolent power. So I think we need to take, and again, I'm going to relate this to Romans chapter 12. We need to take the biblical worldview, I think, more serious. I think we need to take Halloween serious, right? Halloween, I, there's a lot of weird things that happen. I get it. Like, and there's a lot of things we should not participate in. Absolutely. But I think Halloween on one level is in line with the biblical worldview, right? A biblical vision of the cosmos that there are terrifying realities out there. Here's the thing, though. Many of us in the church, and I talked a little bit about this last week, many of us are functional deists. I'll, I'll get to that, but let me just say this really quick. Part of the problem when we talk about like um, this, like mysterious realities afoot in the cosmos, some of you like are now thinking about Bigfoot. Oh, so this guy probably thinks in Bigfoot. This guy's maybe he's like a conspiracy theorist, like all that kind of stuff. And I, I think in many ways that's in line with our biggest problem is that we usually think, and Christians do this a lot, it's implicit within our worldview, we think of spiritual and spiritual beings as part and parcel with a pre-scientific way of seeing the world, right? N.T. Wright says we are wretched flat earthers, meaning we just live by, mat by material substance. We believe everything is reducible to chemicals, whatever. We just kind of go our day we go about our daily life just kind of doing what we do, right? Raising our babies, raising our families, going to work, coming to church, and we largely forget about what's going on in this unseen part of the world that the Bible speaks about. So we usually, we practice kind of a form of chronological snobbery. We basically tell us, maybe not us in here, but other people out there, we just don't believe in what the Bible says about the cosmos. And for most Christians, though, we know very well that spiritual beings actually exist. We go to Scripture, and we might agree with the phrase that creation is engulfed in a cosmic war. But here's the problem. We live our lives as if it isn't true. This is, this is what we call functional deism. In other words, God isn't dead. Yeah, he's probably alive. But we live our lives in such a way that it wouldn't matter if God was alive or dead. Right? And we, 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 we do this the same with angels and demons and all these quasi-supra-natural uh, realities. We might call the devil, we might call Hasatan, whatever. Um, we do the same thing. Um, we just don't realize 
how all this talk about demons, the Satan, all the stuff that we find in Scripture, how that relates to us, right? Uh, Philip Johnson has defined um, this kind of way of seeing the world as scientific naturalism. And his definition is this. It's a story that reduces reality to physical particles and impersonal laws, portrays life as a meaningless competition among organisms that exist only to survive and reproduce, and sees the mind as no more than the emergent property of biochemical reactions. Christians fundamentally disagree, not with science, but with scientific naturalism. We believe that God is alive. We believe that Jesus won the victory over all the invisible powers. We believe that Christ died for our sins. We believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Come on. And we believe that we have been called by God to implement the victory. I hope, you, I hope you're hearing me. To implement the victory of Jesus over the powers in our world. So what is the Bible? How does the Bible see the cosmos. How does the Bible see what maybe some of us call spiritual warfare? Let me just say this really quick. Some of you might be uneasy about what I'm talking about. I get it. Um, I, I get, I'll say it this way. I, usually when we talk about something like this, there are people that want to sensationalize this. So what, what we do is we hear a talk about like demons or whatever, and then we start obsessing over it, right? Uh, we start looking for demons under every rock, every tree, uh, we, we have this weird curiosity with demonic stuff and, and whatever. And um, some of us might even, by happenstance, leave today. We're like, oh, God, right? I hope, we're, you know, they're just like a little nervous about all these mysterious realities that we cannot see. I don't think we should be that way, right? And I think the reason why some people sensationalize demon talk and there are demons everywhere is because I think at the bottom of it, we want to connect our behavior with the devil made me do it. Let me just say this really quick. When I was four years old, we were, I was living in Portland. Uh, we were the height, it was like 1980, so it was the height of the disco days, right? B.J. Thomas, if you're 40 and older, you know who B.J. Thomas was. Remember Raindrops, or something, Falling on My Head, like that song. So back then we had big, big record players, and my mom, I don't know how I had this record, but I had this record of B.J. Thomas, right? And he was rock and roll, and we couldn't listen to rock and roll, but I decided to get this um, Record player, brought in my room, closed the door, turned it on, started jumping up and down. Well, we lived in a small house. My mom was right outside the door. She came in, and she goes, why did you disobey me, Chris? And I remember jumping up. I thought it was really clever. I was, I was jumping. I go, well, Mom, a devil made me do it, right? I think a lot of people, I, I, and I, think it's, I don't think it's just necessarily conscious. I think it's implicit that we want to connect our behavior because we don't want to take responsibility. We want to connect our behavior with demonic activity. I do believe there, are demo there is demonic activity out there. But we have to take responsibility for the decisions we make. Can I get an amen? So, the Bible is not hyper-Pentecostal, is not extreme. It's just realistic about what is going on in our world. And we find in Ephesians chapter 6, we begin in verse 10, Through 13, it says, finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What are the schemes? The devil comes to tempt. Has anyone ever experienced temptation? Two o'clock at night, you're like, where are you going with this, Chris? And you see a Taco Bell commercial. And we all know Taco Bell is from the devil. And you're starving, Right? 
You just watched the Boise State game, and then you give in to the temptation, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're a talk about eating taco, right? Tacos. Right? We all know. We all have been tempted. The devil works through temptation. The devil works through accusation. Uh, we'll talk more about this later in 2021, whatever. The devil works to deceive people, right? Those are kind of the, the tactics. We'll talk more about that later. But the way we withstand the devil is we've got to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against him. And then he says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle. Here's our vision, New Testament vision of the cosmos in miniature. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Wow. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand firm. Uh, one author says this as a commentary to Ephesians chapter 6. Spiritual warfare, in other words, is all-encompassing. It touches every area of our lives, our families, our relationships, our church is our neighborhoods, our communities, our places of employment. There's virtually no part of our existence over which the Hasatan or this present darkness does not want to maintain or reassert his unhealthy and perverse influence. The conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, in the words of another author, is all-encompassing. In other words, it encompasses how we use our money, what we watch on TV, how we raise our kids, the tone of the voice which, which we speak to our spouse, how we use our time, how we talk about our boss when he isn't listening. Indeed, every aspect of our lives is touched or engulfed by this cosmic warfare. Some of you are like, wow, that sounds exhausting, right? Paul is just giving us a realistic picture of, of what's happening. Paul is not saying that we shouldn't take responsibilities as followers of Jesus when it comes to making decisions. Paul is not saying we excuse everything as demonic and thus not taking responsibility for sin or dehumanizing activities or mindsets that we engage in. Paul is simply saying that, man, we have to fight the good fight of faith. But here's the good news. In 1 John 3.8, Jesus is it's made very explicit about him as John writes, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But this is the reason Jesus, the Son of God, appeared. And he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. He appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Then we come to Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 15. Since therefore, the author of Hebrews says, the children share in the flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, right, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So here we have basically just the theology worked out. It's at the foot of the cross that, yes, Romans 8 tells us that God condemned sin in the body of Jesus, and now we are free. Can I get an Amen. We are free to serve God and to be who God has called us to be. But we also find this Christus Victor theme that at the foot of the cross, Jesus won a cosmic and decisive victory over every power, malevolent power that is 
in opposition to the will of God for our lives. This is a staggering view. Please don't leave, right? Please come back next week and hear more about this. Some of you are like, oh, man, we're talking about the devil. I don't know if I really believe in him, and I just don't want to get into weird stuff. I get it. Let me just say this really quick. We are not next week going to get up and start dancing with snakes and have you drink poison and do weird stuff that's related to spiritual warfare or whatever, right? Um, we're, we're called, right, not to do that. We're called to faithfully and wisely live in a world that is engulfed in warfare, but it's a warfare that's already been won by the victory of Jesus at the foot of the cross. Are you with me? So, kind of built, just, and this isn't comprehensive, kind of built a case of, okay, we live in a war-torn universe. How then shall we live with this unfolding drama, right, of cosmic stuff? Weird, mysterious, quasi-personal beings floating around, whatever. I don't even know what that means, some of you are thinking, right? Don't worry about it. You don't have to. Some people just have this weird curiosity about how all this works. Don't even worry about how it works, right? Matthew chapter 4 tells, gives us an interesting portrait. Hasatan comes to Jesus and tries to tempt Jesus. Jesus doesn't worry about where he came from. Jesus isn't trying to figure out every hierarchy of the devil, He's not trying to figure everything else out. What does Jesus simply do? Jesus simply says, it is written. In other words, Jesus defeats the devil not by figuring out all the stuff, and he obviously understood the stuff, but he gives us a pattern by stating the most important thing. Jesus defeated the devil by the word of God. So more than anything, we need God's truth. We'll talk more about that. Later. So how now shall we live within this cosmic drama? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12. I'll just give you a few points and then we'll end here and then I'll pray. And then we'll go eat some really good barbecue, all right? Number one, we've got to remind ourselves every single day that we live in the aftermath of the decisive and cosmic victory of Jesus. In other words, we are called throughout the New Testament to pick up victory. The victory of Jesus. We ever, if, if you are a follower of Jesus, am I getting too strong here? But if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the achievements of Jesus made available to you. But just like what we read about the gifts and the charisma in Romans chapter 12, that victory doesn't happen automatically. We have to pick up that victory. And we pick up that victory by reminding ourselves of Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 15, that at the foot of the cross, Jesus disarmed every principality and power and made a public spectacle of them and paraded them around as defeated foes. We got to remind ourselves, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 56 through 57, that Jesus won the victory over the greatest anti-creation force, and that is death itself, reversed it. And now you and I have life and life more abundantly. It affects our psychology, right? It affects how we relate to work. It affects how we raise our kids, right? That life is not just a spiritual life. It's a life that pervades every aspect. Our bodies, our psyche, come on somebody, our wills, like what we do with our money, what we watch on TV, everything we do is affected by this life and this victory. Number two, Paul, in his exposition in Romans chapter 12, makes it very explicit that we're not just persons. 
stake. We are people. Or in other words, we are a people, right? We're not just, in other words, we're not just random monads wandering through a vast lonely cosmos. We're not just individual units, right? They're just kind of wandering around and we come to church and then we, we say high five and we say a few things, we sing some songs and we go back and we spend just simply time with our families. No, when you come to church and you're a follower of Jesus, man, we're here today as a family and we belong together, right? We've talked about this a lot in the summer, but Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 Again, gives us this exposition of the spirituals. And again, the spirituals are the stuff that the Spirit of God does and works through us. Those spirituals only work, and this is what I think Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12, which we read, only work inside the context of our life together. In other words, I don't think we can overcome evil outside the context of the church. I, th- I, I, I don't think you can do it by yourself. I, some of you are really strong, but you're not that strong. Some of you are weak, and you need someone who is strong in your life. And then there will be a day when the Holy Spirit works in your life, and you become strong, and you need to help those who are weak, right? My word, we need each other. And in verse 21 that we find in Romans chapter 12, right, that word overcome is nakahos, where Nike gets their word to conquer or to be victorious. Paul is making the case that if we're going to overcome evil, if we're going to engage in this this spiritual warfare that that I've kind of built out for us and what we find in the New Testament, man, we have to learn to fully participate in the spirituals in our life together. In other words, the gifts that God, and I'm going to get to this here pretty quick, but the gifts that God has given us are not for our own sake, but, but they're for the building and the edification of each other, right? So why do we need each other? Because no one in this room has all the gifts. Man, I, I, man, I know my weaknesses, right? I know, I know. You would be shocked that I have one weakness, no, I know my weaknesses, and I, some of you, and I love this, some of you can think in ways that I can't even think, and I need you. And there are ways that I think in ways that you don't think, and you, whether you like me to hear this, or you like to hear this or not, I, you need me. We, we need each other. And this is how we um, participate in spiritual warfare. Many people think that, hey, when, if you've grown up in charismatic churches, you, you probably are familiar with this. Many people think when we talk about spiritual warfare, that means we got to go to, like, CUNA and speak to the principality of CUNA. Or Idaho City, right? And we got to speak to the devil, right? I think that's nonsensical. If you're speaking to the devil, ah, right? I, I just want to do that, all right? I, I just don't think you need to acknowledge him. I think more than anything, it, the, the way we engage in spiritual warfare is we, we just simply need to acknowledge God, right? So when it comes to engaging in what we're talking about, it's important that we learn to acknowledge our gifts and we learn to understand how those gifts work in a faithful way with each other. Number three, our full participation in the spirituals is absolutely and I've said this before, but I want you to hear me, is essential to fighting the good fight of faith. 
Remember, the spirituals that Paul speak about have an astonishing variety to them, right? As I mentioned before, they're illustrative, not exhaustive. So there are thousands of ways that God has gifted us by the Spirit to help each other, to encourage each other, and to help us build for the kingdom of Jesus and to help us overcome uh, the evil, this present darkness in the world. And this is really important when Paul lists out in verse 6 through 8 the gifts that we talked about. These gifts are not just simply things that we possess, hobbies that we engage in to maybe help each other out every now and, and now and again. Gifts, what I think what Paul is saying, as he lists them out in verses 6 through 8, are more than just things that we use to help each other. They're that. But gifts are strongly connected to calling. Strongly connected to calling. And this is why I think the devil would love nothing more than to confuse you in your gifts. I think the devil would love nothing more than try to stop you in participating in what the Holy Spirit wants to work through you. Because if he can stop you in your gifts, if he can confuse you, if he can create caricatures, well, if I engage in this spiritual gift, people are going to think I'm weird. Or if I do this, people, man, are going to maybe reject me, right? Or maybe this gift is marginalized. People, the church doesn't honor that gift. And so what happens is we allow the gifts to remain latent. And if we do that, I think what happens is we fail to fulfill the call of God in our life. Because calling and gifts, not all the time, but on many levels, are inextricably connected. And we are called all of us to build for the kingdom of Jesus, not just a pastor, right, not just a group of elders, not just a group of executive staff members, right, not just all the holy people who pray five hours a day. No, every single person is called to build for the kingdom of God, and we do that by acknowledging our gifts, putting them into use, putting them into practice, not as hobbies, but we begin to realize that our gifts are more about calling. I think that there are people, if there are people in the church that are unfulfilled with church life, I, I think it's less to do with preaching or the failure of preaching. Some of you love my preaching. Some of you don't, okay? I don't understand why you don't like my preaching. But it's funny how we want to project our unfulfillment on, man, they didn't play Bethel. Or, man, they're too charismatic today. I want to be a little bit more Episcopalian and a little bit high liturgical, right? Or, man, he didn't, Pastor Chris preached on spiritual warfare stuff. That, he, he's crazy, right? Like, many times what we do is we take our unfulfillment and we extrapolate it onto someone else. And we fail to realize, and I think this is, and this is 22 years of ministry experience, okay? So I'm talking to some people, right? that our unfulfillment is actually more connected to our unfulfillment of the gifts and the call of God in our life. It could, be, it could be my fault. I haven't done a good job of teaching. It could be whatever. But ultimately, we have responsibility to put into practice the gifts of God that he's given to us. Are you hearing me? So it's important that we fully engage in that. And when we fully participate in the spirituals, and again, I think this is what Romans 12 is saying, is that that is when we overcome evil. It seems 
that Paul would, would argue, and I think he's arguing this in his exposition, that our participation in the gifts of the Spirit is a declaration of war. When we fully participate in the gifts and the call that God has for us, when we choose self-giving love over self-serving love, when we make a decision, a hard decision, to be a community of justice, right, and beauty, and radical generosity, what are we doing? We are declaring war over evil itself. Remember, Paul says at the very end, this is how we conquer evil in all of its forms, structural forms, social, political forms, cultural forms, but this is how we engage in spiritual warfare. We don't obsess over devils. What do we do? We simply overcome evil with goodness. And we overcome evil with goodness as we put into practice in self-giving ways the gifts that God has given us. Are you with me? So this is why I think it's incumbent that we, this week, next several weeks, as we move into 2020, as we talk more about being a spiritual church, it's incumbent that we all, I think we do inventory. I think we maybe ask the Holy Spirit, are there things that maybe I'm refusing to let you work through me? Are there gifts that are latent, like they're inactive, inert, that I need the Holy Spirit to work through me. Again, this is not about your personal fulfillment. Let me say this really quick. When we exercise or put into practice the spirituals, we are fulfilled. Can I get an amen? But it's more, it's less about our, our personal fulfillment, and it's more about how God, there are other people in this room that need your gift. So it's more about how God wants to work through you to bring encouragement to other people. Can I get an Amen. So when we engage in that, we fully participate in the spirituals. This is how we implement the victory of Jesus at the foot of the cross. So I'm going to close here by, and are you still with me? Did all that kind of make sense? Sort of. Uh, I want to end with this kind of strange gift. Paul mentions it, mentions it in Romans 12. It's the first gift. He's privileging it. We know in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you can read it. He privileges the prophetic gift. He actually says that I want all of you. Everyone say all of you. Not just a few of you, not just a select group of people, but I want all of you to earnestly desire this prophetic gift. And so I want to talk a little bit about this because this prof prophetic gift, what we call prophecy, I think is, is essential to our life as a community. It's essential for winning this war over the powers. So let me just say this really quick. What is prophecy? What is it? Is it dramatic? Is it sensational? Is it spontaneous? It could be all, th all three. Is it um, inspired speech? Certainly, it can, without question. Uh, to prophesy means that the Holy Spirit is speaking through you. But many of us have like caricatures of to prophesy. Again, if you've grown up in a charismatic church, many of us think that to prophesy simply means you have to like, thus saith the Lord all the time, right? Or you gotta sing song your way through some prophetic act, right? And, and certainly if that's your thing, that's your cadence, that's great, but uh, that's not necessarily what prophecy is. In the Greek word, prophecy, um, or to prophesy, it can mean to speak under inspiration or to speak about the future, certainly. But the Greek word is derived from this base 
word, and this base word simply means to shine or to make manifest luminosity, or it simply means to lighten. So this word, prophecy, is associated with light. Verse 24, 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 makes it very clear, Paul makes it very clear, the effect of prophecy. Prophecy is designed by God to bring clarity, not confusion, right? But clarity to his people. And it's designed to bring mysteries out into the open. So prophecy is less about a technique, right? It's less about, okay, I'm going to label prophecy as this or that or as really dramatic, right? Prophecy can be you abiding in Jesus, you studying, researching, and then all of a sudden God gives you a word of knowledge, right? It could be a, a spontaneous thing, or it could just simply come through the process of researching and just simply being with Jesus. And then as you begin to speak, you bring fresh insight about what God has spoken in his word. In other words, prophecy is bringing into light in fresh applications, in fresh ways, all that God wants to do in you. And Paul makes it very clear. I want all of you, everyone say all of you. I want all of you to prophesy. Wow. So does prophecy mean I got to be dramatic? No. But I think we need more dramatic in the church. No? Not confusion. Not anything out of order, right? If you're out of order, I'll have to talk to you, right? Or I'll send Joel King to talk to you, right? We believe that everything should be done in order, right? Um, not in confusion. God's the author of peace, not of confusion. Um, but prophecy sometimes can can be dramatic where God gets a hold of your heart, right? It's designed, again, to, to encourage, but it's also designed as people come into the church to, to open up the secrets of the heart and, for the first time, hear God speak to them. So prophecy can be dramatic. Let me just say this really quick. One author said this, many people have become so accustomed to operating with no demonstration of spiritual power that they are bothered by any demonstration of it. So we're so accustomed to not, God not working in our life that when God does work, we're like, I don't want that. You know what I mean? So we got to be careful of that. We also got to be careful of the idea that it's only prophecy if it like turns ecstatic and you turn weird and it just whatever, right? That's not what prophecy is. Prophecy can happen through preparation, as I mentioned, research, or simply being in the moment. Prophecy is when God speaks to us to bring a fresh word. It's not confusing. It brings encouragement. I think prophecy is an umbrella word for the word of knowledge and wisdom. We'll talk more about that later. So let me just say this really quick. It's, we got to be careful with label labeling prophecy or putting a category over it. As I mentioned before, don't bifurcate prophecy into two, two labels. There are some people in the church that want to take prophecy and label it as simply spontaneous in the moment and you just speak, God gives you a word, right? That can happen. And I think that's an aspect of prophecy. Can I get an amen to that? I had that happen to me many times. Other times, what I've experienced is that being prophetic could happen just simply by writing and researching and studying. And in that, God speaks to me. Many of you don't know, but every single Sunday, I'm prophesying over you. Right? It doesn't have to be like we stop everything that we do and we get 
we, we whatever, we just become spontaneous, right? So we got to make sure that we don't like, like bifurcate, right? Turn it into like, it's either this or that. It can be both, right? And there are times when God has spoke to me in the moment and I've spoken a word of God and it's brought clarity. And there are times through research and through writing and just through prayer and being with Jesus, right, and study that God speaks to me. And that's when I'm being prophetic. Paul says this, if we want to win and overcome evil, as I close, I've gone too long, we have to earnestly desire to prophesy. In other words, I'm just... I'm, I'm going to say it for what it is. We are called, not just us, but every church, whether you're Episcopalian, Methodist, Wesleyan, Chalmedian, doesn't matter what faith, background, or denomination you come from within the world of Christianity, we are all called to prophesy. We have to be a prophetic church. We have to learn. Um, to bring clarity to what God is saying to us so we can build each other up, so we can overcome evil, and we can be who God has called us to be. Can I get an amen?